Stop, Focus, and Connect. An introduction to the formula for creating or strengthening intimate relationships. Presented by Mitchell Tepper, keynote speaker at our 2019 SCI conference, Connections, Sexuality, and Relationships After Spinal Cord Injury. Let's listen in. Dr. Tepper brings a unique combination of personal experience with spinal cord injury and professional expertise in research and education pertaining to sexuality and disability. He is an American Association of Sexuality Educators, Counselors, and Therapists, Certified Sexuality Educator, Certified Sexuality Counselor, Educator Supervisor, and also is a sex coach, writer, researcher, public speaker, and self-proclaimed prophet of pleasure. Dr. Tepper is internationally recognized for his expertise in the field of sexuality and disability and has been advocating for us to address sexuality more comprehensively in inpatient rehabilitation and outpatient rehabilitation and in all other venues where we serve people with disabilities. And we're so honored to have him here with us today. So please welcome Dr. Tepper. Good morning. Good morning, everybody. I think we might have somebody in the room who could answer this question. Can anyone tell me what this is? Heat map. map. Very close. Very close. It it is. Anyone else? Do you want to roll up and come? I'm going to give him a copy. This is my book, uh, Regain That Feeling. To inspire people to talk a little bit more by giving little prizes. But but this is it. It is a heat map. It's it's an. It's this is your brain on orgasm. This, seriously, this is an EEG, right? It's an EEG of a woman in the laboratory uh, during clitoral stimulation, and the the heat, you know, the hotter it is, the yellow here represents orgasm. This is two minutes leading up to orgasm, and two minutes after. So you have it as it heats up. It goes from the darker colors to the, to the hotter colors to the yellow, and then cools down. So this slide was shared with me from one of my colleagues, Dr. Barry Komisarek, who is a researcher over at Rutgers University here in New Jersey. And I had the privilege to work with Barry and Dr. Beverly Whipple. Anyone ever hear of the G-Spot? So Beverly Whipple wrote the book to G-Spot, and it was in her lab uh, that they renamed the G-Spot. Uh, and so Beverly and, and Barry work together and they have really the world's leading orgasm research laboratory. And so when I was a graduate school student, I saw that they were doing research on spinal cord injury and I was able to join the group. And we did really the groundbreaking orgasm research. It was based on people with spinal cord injuries, but what we did was added to the literature for everybody. So that was way back in 1997 and 1998. And just in brief, you know, we brought women with complete spinal cord injuries at different levels into a lab, and they were to stimulate themselves in several areas, the cervix, an area of the anterior wall of the vagina, and an area above the level of injury where they had sensitivity. And we proved in the laboratory that women with even complete spinal cord injuries, and they were tested by a, a doc to make sure they were complete, can experience orgasm. Okay, so we were looking at uh, pain, attenuation during sexual ar arousal. We were looking at spasticity, and we were looking at 
orgasm and measured both. I won't get into the measure different measure different ways uh, scientifically, and also by an analog scale where the woman would say, "Yes, I'm having an orgasm." So, out of 15 women with complete injuries, three out of 15 were able to experience orgasm under very strict conditions in, in a laboratory. So this image and the research uh, that we have been doing presents good news for you guys. Because while we can't fix your spinal cord yet, we can train your brain. And so we all have the ability to access states of described as orgasm, ecstasy, and bliss if we pay enough attention and with the right stimulus, with the proper intention. So it's focus and attention. So it's stop, focus, and connect. So we'll get more into that about slowing down, uh, focusing in on sensations, and, and connecting with yourself and your partner. But adult sexuality is about much more than pleasure and orgasm. It's also about connection, right? We all have a yearning for connection. Someone, we want to be loved by somebody, we want to be able to love somebody, and we want that person to be able to actually see us, right? See all of us and accept us, the good and the bad and the ugly, all right? And so that, that's what really true intimacy about it is. And um, what I found through my own qualitative and quantitative research that I did after working in the laboratory is that pleasure and orgasm in folks like us with, with spinal cord injuries um, is we get through it. It's when there is the context, and this I'll talk a little bit more about my research. When people are in the context of a relationship, long-term or short-term, that there is a sense of trust and safety. It creates a container for connectiveness. And with trust, safety, and connectiveness, that formula has the ability to transcend any physical loss and is the pathway for people to move forward towards pleasure and orgasm. Okay? So that's trust, safety, and connectiveness. So you see that the really the great sex lies more in the position of your brain than it does in the position of your body. And it relies more on the feelings in your heart than the feelings in your genitals. And it relies more on the quality of the connection uh, than the quality of the erection. Erection for men or women. So this is a little bit about me since I'm like one of you in many ways. In some ways, I may be different. Uh, that's me, circa, if you can, can you see that from back there? I'm reading a Playboy. And ni 1964, I figured out that magazine is. So I've been researching human sexuality for over 50 years. Okay, and uh, uh, and that's at my that's at my grandparents' house, and, and my uncle's a photographer. He took it, so 
and I, this is me here, the skinny one. So I grew up with something called Crohn's disease. So I grew up, I had the experience, a lifelong experience of chronic condition before I broke my neck. So uh, I got a lot of experience with this stuff. They called me skin and bones, ghost, uh, chipmunk, but I was, I was pretty resilient, so I, I developed pretty good coping mechanisms before I broke my neck. I went on some medications uh, which helped me beef up. I think I was probably 17 there. Uh, I like to do gymnastics and swimming, stuff like that. I was a lifeguard on Long Island Sound, but when I went back to work after getting uh, an ileostomy, I had some surgery and I had to wear this bag, um, and, and the doctor told me, don't let that bag get in the way of anything you want to do. I said, I want my job back as a lifeguard. So he, he wrote my, he gave me a release, and I used to tuck that bag under my shorts, and when I dove in, I put the hand over the bag just to protect it, and this day I was just going in to fix a buoy, nothing special, in a lake, and when I dove over the lake, you know, when I came around, you all have your stories, I went a little too deep and head planted, so that's, that's how I ended up in, in a chair, and you know, since we're so close to New York, uh, I did my rehab here at Rusk. Anyone do any of the rehab at the Institute of Rehab Medicine? Are you all Kessler folks? Yeah. Uh, all right, so well, I'm back in the day. But this is what, it's not a very big picture, but that's what power mobility looked like back in 1982. So, and for my 21st, for, for, well, it's early. For my 21st birthday, uh, my uncle, who lives in New York City, uh, hired a stripper to come to my birthday party in the hospital. Uh, and so I think that I told you I might be a little bit different from some of you in that I've been, you know, from a very early age doing sex research. My family are perverts, and it's made me very comfortable talking about this topic. So, and in a little less than four years after my injury, I went back to school, I met my wife-to-be. You see, back then I used to walk with some crutches and braces and all that stuff, but, but went back to work, worked in banking for a while, but got married, went back to school. I got a master's in public health where I did a national study of sex education and counseling and spinal cord injury programs. That was in like 1990, so I sent a survey to 500 people. Uh, who were on our mailing list as people with spinal cord injuries and asked them, did you get any sex education or counseling in rehab? So we're right now in this group, how many people got any kind of sexuality education or counseling while you were in the hospital? Only one person? So back in the day, so I did my research in 1990, people were about 10 years post-injury, so back in the 80s, 50% of people who went through rehab got some kind of education, right? 50% got nothing. For the 50% of people who got any education or counseling, it might have been just a brochure or a 40-minute class with men and women, uh, and so it really didn't like speak to them. Uh, and so that really inspired me to go on and get my PhD in human sexuality education. I was heading towards um, managing a rehab hospital, which would have been fine too, but I just felt my calling, that's where the profit and pleasure comes from, 
you know, it's my calling, and most of the time I do it for not getting paid. So uh, those two things. Uh, and 10 years after marriage, and in the middle of my PhD, I had a baby, you know, through using, and I wrote about this called Making Babies Using Vibrostimulation and At-Home Insemination. So uh, we're not going to get into those details, I don't believe, today at this conference, but like, Guys, if you, during lunch when people are talking about women's stuff, if, if you want to know about that kind of man stuff, I could, I could share that with you. And this little guy here is 22, going on 23 in August, and I'm going on 37 years post-injury. So this is the title of my dissertation research that took many years at University of Pennsylvania. It says, lived experiences that impede or facilitate sexual pleasure and orgasm in people with spinal cord injuries. So I wanted to focus on pleasurable aspects of sexuality. I'm not really goal-orientated like towards orgasm, but it's just created something that you could look at, you know, what are the differences? Because I wanted to know what's the difference? We had three women in our laboratory who were able to experience orgasm, 12 who couldn't, why? And I had done um, qualitative analysis of these women the, and, and I had begin to see this trajectory, right? And so I wanted to follow up with more men and women so, you know, I talked to 47 men and women about their orgasm experiences. And, you know, I did survey uh, studies and quantitative analysis, statistical analysis. And there were no significant differences between people in the orgasm and no orgasm group, right, in the areas of level or completeness of injury, okay? So level or completeness of injury didn't determine whether somebody ended up having an orgasm or not. There was no significance in general sexual knowledge. You know, this is not specific to their spinal cord injuries. There was no significant difference in general sexual attitudes, right? But there was a correlation between the years since injury and also uh, a correlation in this significant difference in this concept called sexual self-esteem. So how many people are here spinal cord injury or over 17 years? Okay, and how many people are 10 years and less? All right, so the, and these are averages, so when we're talking about this, the people in my orgasm group average 17.1 years post-injury. Those in the no orgasm group average 10.3 years post-injuries. So it seems like something happens over time, right? We then saw this concept of sexual self-esteem. People in the orgasm group had higher sexual self-esteem than the no-orgasm group. So these two things are important, but if I just did statistical research, I could say, which a lot of health professionals tell you is just give it time and everything will be okay. You know, if you have high self-esteem, everything will be okay. Well, time alone doesn't do it, right? And self-esteem 
alone doesn't do it, because we know that actually, like, any psychologist in the group, so like the Rosenberg, like sexual, or the Rosenberg sex, self-esteem scale has like 10 or 11 questions, none of them about sex. So we can't tell you that self-esteem is going to help your sex life. So a lot of people go on in their lives and they, they feel good about themselves in different roles, but they still may not feel good about themselves as a sexual person. So this concept of sexual esteem is defined as positive regard for and confidence in the capacity to experience your sexuality in a satisfying and enjoyable way. So positive regard for that you have this feeling uh, that you can experience your sexuality in a lovable, capable, well, in, in, more, in, in, a, in an enjoyable and, and um, satisfying way. But another simpler way I put it is, you know, I am lovable and capable. You know, if we feel like we're lovable and that we're capable of being good partners, uh, that helps. So with the qualitative research I did to follow up, it helped me understand more. And I came to the realization that pleasure and orgasm after spinal cord injury is the result of a process of sexual self-discovery. Uh, I just have to make sure I'm on the right slide here for you guys. All right, so the process happens much like it happens before injury. That is, it happens haphazardly, often without any formal guidance. So when I ask people how they learn about sexuality, they learn about sexuality from their friends, they learn sexuality from the media. Nowadays, younger generation, internet and porn. And um, there's not a lot of formal education in school. Uh, there's not a lot of formal education at home in sexuality. And at uh, houses of worship, religious institutions, and even in hospitals. So the folks that I talk to it was the same after injury. So I only saw one hand go up. Hopefully some of you more didn't raise your hands, got some kind of education or counseling. But um, people said, you know, both before and after injury, it was like, don't ask, don't tell, right? And so you don't ask, no one's gonna to talk to you about it. So the process of sexual self-discovery after injury really starts with the realization that my sexual responses is not the same, it's not normal. So tell me about your sexuality after your injury, time after time. So in qualitative research, we look for themes that emerge. People say it's not the same, it's not normal. It wasn't working normally, it wasn't feeling right. And it was frustrating, it was weird, it's irritating, it's awkward, right? So th those are the type of feelings that people had. And so that whether they had a diminished sensation or totally lost sensation, in combination with this desire to kind of recover what we had before injury, uh, resulted in a lot of intrusive thoughts when they attempted sexual activity. And this thinking put a damper on their sexual future and deterred many people from trying again. So many people's first experiences with masturbation, and they said, well, 
you know, wasn't going anywhere, I couldn't feel it, or I could feel it, but I didn't get aroused, or I got aroused, but I couldn't ejaculate. Uh, and so I would say, well, what were you thinking while you were doing this? I was thinking that this is kind of mechanical. I was thinking, is this going to work? So no one was really thinking of anything too sexy, right, when they were experimenting. Some people had lived experiences with a partner, and the partner may have uh, avoided having sex with them, they may have cheated on them, they may have left them, they may have said, you don't feel the same, right? And so that's also kind of devastating. And so these early experiences left many people feeling sex is pointless, why bother? And uh, no matter whether someone was in the orgasm or no orgasm group, excuse me, my thing is falling here, um, I asked about peak sexual experiences. And as I mentioned before, peak sexual experiences needed to be with someone that they trusted uh, and felt safe with. Now, it didn't need to be a life partner. It could have been somebody else in rehab who had more experience, right? So a lot of people's first experiences are with other people with disabilities, right? And they, they connected with them on a certain level about what was going on. They felt comfortable with those people. And, and for them, that was their first experience. One woman out of the three in our lab that had an orgasm was only two years post-injury. So don't worry if you haven't had that yet or a pleasure yet and you're saying, I gotta wait for 17 years. She had gotten home, her partner, she was on the couch, said he was going out to get something and never came back. So she was abandoned early in her, in her injury and she saw the call for research in our lab and she wanted a safe place to come and explore. And she experienced orgasm multiple times in, in our lab. So this, this concept of trust and safety is very important when we want to begin to stop, focus, and connect. Uh, one more comment here. You know, because we don't have a great source of sexuality education, and I'm a sexuality educator by training, um, and we get our education from media and magazines and porn, right? We're left with this kind of idea that sex is all about, right, um, an erection and intercourse and ejaculation and orgasm, right? So all of sexuality is boiled down to those things. And, you know, when you have an, a change in your sexual function or response, that's where we're left thinking it's not the same, it's not normal. When you learn more about sexuality from really a multi-faceted uh, perspective, and then you learn in to tap into all these other aspects of sexuality, uh, you begin to learn many other ways to experience pleasure uh, and even get to the point of or orgas orgasm uh, when you leave your mind open. I had went way ahead of my, I mean, it looks like the same slides, but um. So the process of sexual self-discovery after injury 
includes reestablishing a sexual relationship with yourself and others, okay? But in the context of this changed body, changed life, changed roles, and changed interpersonal relationships, right? So in addition to learning haphazardly, right, like we did before injury, and before injury we learned about having sex, sometimes people's first experience, like I said, of having sex is not good. And so you're deterred from moving forward. So the peak sexual experience, as I said, people said they needed to be with their partner for different reasons. They said there was excitement in pleasing the other person and then that, you know, was contagious, you know, so that it's a back and forth, you know, pleasing somebody, I'm pleased, pleased myself. Some people even felt orgasmic through pleasing their partner. Um, complementary sexual energies, uh, identifying sex as more of an intimate expression rather than just getting off, and this feeling of connectedness. So connectedness is what really helped people move uh, along the pathway back to pleasure and for some orgasm in romantic relationships. So we all yearn for that connection on a more intimate and spiritual level. Whether it's platonic or romantic, interpersonal connection helps us really feel valuable, desirable, lovable, and whole. So like being in love and feeling connected to others makes us focus less on ourselves and on our problems, right? So all of the major uh, world religions emphasize the importance of humanity's intrinsic connectedness. So whether you believe in evolution or in creationism or in something else in between, Taking a closer look at some stories from the Judeo-Christian Bible reveals some universal message. Uh, how many people here are familiar with the, the story of Cain and Abel? All right, so I'll go through it just really quickly from, from this perspective. Uh, in, in, the, in Genesis, right, in the stories of creation, well, I'm going to go into the story of creation before I do Cain and Abel, okay? Because this one goes to connectedness. So in the beginning, right, God said, let there be light, right? So light was created on day one. If you read the story, right, um, the sun and the moon and the stars, the celestial bodies, weren't created until day four, right? So the light that God said, let there be light, is what people look as theo theologically as the source of all creation and everything is connected through the light of the initial creation. So that gives us the concept that we're all created together. Um, I think my... All right, so I guess Cain and Abel comes here. Um, so Cain was a, a, a farmer, and Abel, his brother, was a shepherd. They each brought an offering to God. Cain brought some of the fruit of the soil as an offering, and Abel brought from the firstborn of his flock, from the best thereof, 
So God accepted Abel's offering, but to Cain and his offering, he paid no regard. Cain became very angry and depressed. As a result of jealous anger and at being rejected by God while his brother was accepted, Cain lost control and he murdered uh, Abel. So on the surface, it looks like jealousy appears to be the motivation for the sin. But if we look closer, we see that Cain thought his offering was worthy and, and, um, and God did not. So Cain disagreed with God, so he thought God was wrong. And so his ultimate crime is murder. But in this instance, he, it was anger and really arrogance, right, that made him, you know, move and do the things that, that they, they are. And anger is usually really a stubborn refusal to accept things the way they are. So when we're forced with like difficult situations and difficult circumstances that we can't or that we feel like we should be able to control, anger can result. So for being arrogant and killing his brother, the punishment for Cain was to be ever unsettled and a wanderer of the earth. So his punishment is to be lonely and disconnected. And see here, the only true disability is is loneliness. And we have so many people who are lonely these days. We have so many young people killing themselves, right? And they're so connected on Facebook and social media, but they're still lonely because no one, they don't really have anyone that really sees them, right, for who they are, just what they present. So, so loneliness uh, is a result. So anger, arrogance, avoidance, denials, fears, insecurities, low self-worth, misguided beliefs about sex and about disability, you know, that we can't be sexy as people with disabilities, no one's gonna want us, who's gonna want me in a chair, you know, who's gonna want me if I don't function. All of these things are barriers to connection. So this slide is intentionally blank. <laughs> Emotional, spiritual aspects of, of sexual pleasure. These aren't things you could really see, right? And these aren't things that we really can explain totally scientifically yet. This concept of connection, we're beginning to look at it as far as in the, it's, it's complicated vagal nerves and, and, and what happens. But we live in this culture that equates sexuality with genital function and performance. But when we look at pleasure and orgasm in this life experience and context, and this process of sexual self-discovery, the holistic nature of sexuality emerges. The focus moves away from performance and genitals and moves to relationships and pleasure. And the power of intrusive thoughts to inhibit your sexual pleasure is limited when we have a broader understanding of, of sexuality and the reciprocal relationship uh, between sexual pleasure and sexual self-esteem is revealed. So the primary importance of a sense of connectedness with the trusted sexual partner as the pathway to achieving pleasure and orgasm introduces this emotional and spiritual concept. These are things we can't really measure in the, in the lab. So I want you to just take a moment 
for a minute. You could close your eyes if you want. But imagine a world without genitals, okay? Just born, no one has, no one has any genitals. This is a world that could help each of us to embrace the beauty of our evolving sexuality. What if it were possible for us to learn how to love others and ourselves without any expectations of physical perfection or sexual performance? What if we valued the sensual uh, pleasures of non-genital touch as much as we did genital touch? What if our families and our schools and our places of worship uh, were always our best equipped sources of sexuality education and our most consistent models of uh, sexuality and healthy sexuality. They would exemplify this intentional love and understand the values and uniqueness and acceptance and connectiveness. So the absence of genital distractions makes it easier really to see the emotional and spiritual aspects of sexuality. So spiritual aspects of sexuality transcend the physical and the knowable, and the meaning and purpose of sexuality is not only as physical connection, but equally important, it's a spiritual one too. So now, let there be genitals. <laughs> uh, the pleasurable sexual sensations that we get from our genitals, they contribute to creating a chemical bond between people. Uh, and it generates, you know, this and reform, re reinforces really a sense of self-worth and love. You know, they flow through our whole bodies. They enliven our minds. They become a cherished part of who we are, right? All of that sexual kind of feelings we have. And it becomes really a part of our existence. So the physical sensations of sex complement the emotional and the spiritual aspects. However, if you lose sensation in your genitals, right, or even, God forbid, if you lose your genitals, I work with folks uh, from the military with combat-related injuries. I'm making a movie right now, documentary called Love After War. Uh, some people have serious genital injuries, but uh, it's, it wouldn't be the end of the world, right? So when you have a spinal cord injury or some other illness or injury that steals away, you know, your, the core of your sensation of your learning about sexuality, you have something else to fall back on, right? You still will mourn, you still will miss, right, this thing that you had, but you won't fall into the point that I'm worthless, no one's going to want me, you know, there's no other way for me to enjoy pleasure through touch in another part of my, uh, of my body. So, when circumstances really force you to look beyond your cultural program, that it's all about what's happening down here, um, we really can expand and begin to see really the universal truth about sexuality. So it's, it's a vehicle for, I'm calling it spiritual connection. It's another way to express passion and energy in our hearts and like life itself Sexuality is really a gift, and the genitals only play a small part in the whole truth of what makes sexuality really sensational. So I talked about some of these, these myths. So in order to stop, right, slow down, and stop the chatter in your brain, we have to explode these myths that we learned, right? 
So we learned, you know, I have no feeling, therefore my sex life is over, right? And so many people, but doc, what if I do? I have no feeling. I know what you're talking about. You mean I don't have any feeling here. My sexual feeling isn't the same. But we all have feelings. We have emotional feelings. We have sensations. We have, we, you know, our eyes, you know, sight and sound and hearing, taste. We could tune into ourselves, focus on sensations. We could feel our heart rate, you know, our heart beating. We could feel respiration. We could feel heat, you know, when we talk about sex flush, right? So we could stop, stop the chatter, stay in the moment, focus on sensations, focus on your partner if you're with a partner, and, and connect. And when we do these things, that will lead to getting a lot of the things that you thought you lost forever back just through a different channel, through a different mechanism. So no matter what your circumstances, there are many ways to express your sexuality and continue your sex life. And um, you know, the creativity, adaptability, and a sense of humor, which I think is all part of the formula. And when Laura talks to us later, um, she'll get into that when we get into actually the sex toys and, and all that stuff. You know, you have to, just like in all aspects of your life after spinal cord injury, you have to be creative, you've got to adapt. And if you don't have a sense of humor, I mean, don't take it too, too heavily, you know. You can find humor in everything. So uh, I'm not experiencing pleasure or orgasm anymore, uh, so sex is pointless, why bother? You see now that we know it is possible, and there is so many more reasons to bother besides functioning sexually, right? There's so many different reasons. And we will get someplace today, I guess, Maybe tomorrow, I'm doing something tomorrow too, but I mean, if you want to have sexual intercourse, we can help you with that. That's the easy part, okay? Uh, we can help you with your sexual function. That's generally the easy part. And your docs, your urologist, if you ask, if they haven't asked, should be able to help you. This is a tough one. Because um, I do a lot of counseling and coaching and working with people who've partners left them or avoided having sex with them really are, are difficult because their lived experience is this. This happened to me. I was in love before. I didn't have a problem. They left. It's me. Well, it's not. So there are partners that their fears or their assumptions, their sense of inadequacy. Some people feel like, I don't know what to do with them. You know, some people leave because I don't know, you know, I don't trust him or her that they're feeling good, that it's okay, and they begin to feel inadequate. Or inability to kind of relate, make him or her avoid you or, or leave you, um, that can cripple your sex life more than any loss of sensation or movement or, or function ever could. Uh, but it, it doesn't have to. I mean, it, it happens and you can't control it. Uh, you can't control other people's reactions or their faults or their misconceptions, or their insecurities, or anxieties, or selfish behaviors. So you shouldn't let that define you, all right? So it happens, it sucks, but it doesn't mean that, that you're not lovable and you're not capable. And so sometimes you can't always depend on the reflection of other people to judge your own value. You have to kind of look into yourself, you have to learn to really love yourself in your changed body, 
and remember that you're lovable and capable and we're all sexual beings no matter what. That's how we were created. And that meaningful connection is really the point and believe that there is a reason to bother. So no one will want a person with a disability as a lover. This is just um, not true. I mean, people will reject people for any reason, right? Someone might not want me because I'm, I'm bald, right, or, or whatever. Uh, and there are millions of single people out there, able-bodied, who say there's no one out there. But really, the, the facts show that people with disabilities end up being in relationships at about the same rate as people without disabilities, all right? And um, so, so there are people out there, and you have other things to offer uh, besides you know, what you can or can't do. So your intelligence, your personality, humor, creativity, these things, kindness, goodness. People like kind people, people like good people. Um, integrity, spirit, reflective thought, all of these are catalysts for intimate relationships. It doesn't have to be just based on your body. Just look at my time here. Do I got five more? So I go to 11.30? All right. So uh, as I mentioned, just give it time. Everything will fall into place. Well, that, that, that's not true. Really, if you want things to move forward, then you have to invest time. You have to ask questions. You have to you know, look at the resources that we share. Uh, and you know, rely on other experienced peers. I learned a lot of what I learned about sex from people who were farther along in the process than me. I learned about vibrostimulation and ejaculation from other people at what's now United Spinal. You know, so people senior to me sharing tricks and trades. So I, I believe a whole lot in peer education and, will, and then willing partners is huge. Surrogate partners is beyond the discussion here, but if someone doesn't have a partner, there is such thing as surrogate partners. Uh, and then competent doctors, therapists, sexuality educators, therapists, you know. Um, so all of this, you know, you should tap into. And I already, already mentioned this one. If you have high self-esteem, everything else uh, will fall into place. That's not true. You know, if you want to experience your sexuality in a satisfying and enjoyable way, you need to invest the time and energy in sexual healing, not just all the other facts. Uh, this one I get, sometimes I speak at rehab hospitals and I would go around people's rooms first and give them a little sheet with likely issues that they may have questions on and say, hey, check this off. I'll put a box in the nurse's station. You know, I'll look through those questions before I come and speak. And they say, well, doc, I really shouldn't be thinking about sex right now. I should be focused on getting out of the hospital getting back to work, getting back to oh, whatever. Uh, there's a million reasons that you can give for excuses for not doing it. But if you're thinking about sex right now, then you should be, right? It's a valid concern in your rehab. It doesn't have to be at the end of the list. It may not be your highest priority, but research shows it's pretty damn high up there. And this is the other one. One spinal cord injury cuts, uh, you know, a connection between your genitals and your brain. Orgasm is impossible. That's because they were defining orgasm by what happened uh, in your genitals, and, and that's not true. Orgasm is really a brain-mediated event uh, that su survives. And pleasure is not merely a physical sensation, right? Pleasure 
is a state of consciousness perceived by our minds and shaped by our attitudes, our beliefs, knowledge, desires, and our life experiences. So what's pleasurable for us can change, and our ability to find new pleasures is, is really endless. And pleasure is a vital component of mental health and overall quality of life. You talked about quality of life and relationships in the opening, right? So this is, this is what it's about. I mean, yeah, we want to maximize our functional independence in rehab, of course, but we also want to have a good quality of life, and that's through uh, pleasure and connectiveness. So it's not just a luxury. I mean, the inability to experience pleasure is actually a diagnosis, one of the things we look at, right, in diagnosing depression. So sexual pleasure is a, is a motivating factor in life. It helps define social action. It helps bring people and keep people together. So the pleasure, pleasure is a good thing. Uh, but if it were merely skin deep, then it would be severely limited for most of us. So an orgasm happens between your ears, not just between your legs. So it's not a real, if, you, if I'm experiencing orgasm, but I have no feeling, it doesn't mean it's a phantom orgasm and it's not a real or true orgasm. People have real and true orgasms even without having that centered uh, in, their, in their genitals. So it's not, notice I don't just say it's all in your head, because it's still mind-body, right? But it's just not gone. And trust, safety, and connectedness matter more than physical and genital function. And the calling card for intimate connection is uh, desire. So what scientists call desire is really you know, a yearning for intimate connection and to be loved by somebody and to be accepted fully as a sexual person, to be energized and revitalized, and to regain that feeling of being alive that we had before and of counting and above being fully valued. It's not just hormonally influenced sex drive. It's what your heart wants, it's what your soul needs, and really what your gut says. So when desire is fulfilled, uh, you feel great. I mean, you feel like a person who matters. Awareness and acceptance are the first step, steps to transformation. So we have to be aware of our situation, that our brokenness, you know, vulnerability and humanity. These things are strengths. You know, they're not, they're not weaknesses. Um, and just we have to be able to be humble and to be present in the moment. And that's required for affirming relationships. And love is not an action. Love uh, is, uh, is, is an action, not a feeling. So um, Western love looks at, at Western ideas looks at love as like Cupid shoots your arrow in your heart, right? And you fall in love, right? We fall in love. It's an accident. It's out of our control. But really, when we look at love and it's focused on the virtues of another person, right? It's intellectual. It's really our choice and we're in control. So conscious intention, energy, work, and time. So pathways to pleasure, trust, safety, and connectedness. We want to stop, focus, and connect. And we want to use our creativity and adaptability uh, for a sense of humor. For more information about Kessler Foundation and our researchers, 
go to KesslerFoundation.org. That's K-E-S-S-L-E-R-F-O-U-N-D-A-T-I-O-N.org. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, listen to us on SoundCloud, and tweet with us on Twitter.